The text for this morning's message is coming from Luke chapter 9, verses 56 through 62. And they went on to another village, and as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the nest air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Father in heaven, I pray now for your power to continue in this room and in the room downtown. We have been singing as a congregation south and a congregation north. And we are united now in prayer to say, come. And anoint this moment in the word, I pray. Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit and enable me to be faithful to the word of God and to speak it with boldness and clarity as I ought to speak. And on the other side, where it's received, would you be giving eyes to see and hearts to bow, taste buds of the heart to delight and enjoy your word and your self. So, Father, come now downtown. Come now here in Roosevelt. And with power, call people to yourself who are not believers and call people who are believers into missions. Lord of the harvest, send laborers by the hundreds from Bethlehem, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God is always doing more than we know. In every event of our lives, every event, whether it's a birth of a baby or the crash of a plane, or whether it's the capturing of a sniper or the storming of a theater in Moscow, God is always doing more than we know. 10,000 times more than we know. 99.9% of God's designs and the effects of every event in the world are hidden from our eyes. We just don't know what God is doing when good and bad things happen in the world. He's always doing more. I thought of this because of last Sunday's sermon, which I listened to by tape. Even though I was preaching in Washington, D.C., I wanted to be able to pick up on what Eric did, and I loved it. I listened to it Wednesday morning when I was running on my running machine, and I was rejoicing and leaping and jumping like Benagata here on the platform to my little rhythm of my running machine. 
And one of the things I learned from that sermon was God is always doing more than one thing. So at the Tower of Babel, he designs, yes, judgment so that in the preservation and the intensification of diversity of languages and cultures, there is a dam erected and a restraint provided against the evil of man's heart who's always clamoring for power and wealth and fame and all the diversity in the world militates against anybody being able to get more of that than we should. He's doing that, but he's doing something way more than that in that same judgment of diversity of languages and cultures. He is both preserving and intensifying for us the very means by which there will be a mosaic of redemption someday. Let the nations praise you, O God. Let all the nations praise you. Let all the languages and all the cultures and all the races praise you, O God, because there will be more praise, more glory reflected of God's glory because of all the diversity of languages and cultures and colors than there would be if there were only one language, one race, one culture. So this diversity that is in the world, these languages, what Wycliffe tells us, six thousands of them, plus cultures, plus colors of all shades, all of that is, yes, a restraint upon us so that no one can get more power than he ought because we're so power-grabbing, so fame-grabbing, so money-grabbing as a human race. But way more is going on than that. Evil is being deflected by the diversity, and the glory of Christ will one day be reflected by the diversity, and we should be singing like we have been singing over the diversity and seeking as a church to maximize it so that this age in the church looks a little more like what it will look someday. So yes, at the Tower of Babel, more was going on than anyone realized. And more is going on in this week at Bethlehem than anybody realizes. Happens every year during Missions Week. We fly a banner. It's got three parts to it. Authority, mission, precious fellowship. And it's found when you take the whole commission into account. It goes like this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I will be with you to the end of the age. All authority is mine. Go make disciples. I'll be with you. Those are the three pieces of the banner that's flying over this church in this week. And when that banner flies, Jesus has all authority. He calls us to go. He will be with us. When that banner flies, 10,000 things happen in a congregation. And most of them, we do not know. But we're going to know a few of them at the end of this service. Because what we'll do, and I'm going to give you a heads up now so it won't take you off guard. No decisions have to be made on the spur of the moment. No manipulation. No soft music playing. No eye closed. No head bowed. I will simply invite three categories of people to stand here. 
I did it the last hour. I called Dan. I said, what happened downtown? He said, a hundred people walked forward. Maybe 50 here. Here are the three categories of people I'm going to invite to come for prayer and for a strategy of where to go with your life now. One, missionaries who are home on furlough and those who are already um, adopted by a mission agency and you know you're going. Two, those who for a long time or recently sense a very powerful and sure call of God to cross a culture. Somebody said in the first hour, ooh, I didn't know whether you meant me because I'm going to minister cross-culturally in the city. And you said foreign. And I said, oh, thank you for telling me. I'll make sure that's clear in the next hour. I mean cross-culturally, whether it's Minneapolis to Somalis or whether it is Maninka in Guinea. The third group is the ambiguous group. It's, will God in this service, or has God in recent months, or maybe in the last few days, been doing something inside, as it were, to loosen the roots of your present life so that what you are now doing, your vocation, your whatever, you sense He's leading you to something different, possibly cross-culturally, and you're not sure, but you'd like prayer. That's, and the reason I'm putting it like that is because I don't want everybody up here at the front. If I were to say, if you're willing to go wherever God calls you to go, I presume every Christian would come, or I'd be failing in my ministry. I don't want every Christian to come. I want people to sit there with an absolutely clear conscience, not having walked to the front. And therefore, we're talking about some kind of special loosening, some kind of special movement, stirring, desire being born that very possibly could be a call across a culture, whether short-term or long-term. So that's what I'm going to ask to walk forward here in a few minutes when I close. And I pray that both downtown and here, God will be moving. God is doing more in this text than anybody realizes at first glance. Let's go to Luke 9. More is going on in this text than you might think. Luke 9, 56 to 62, three would-be followers show up. We'll follow you. And the response they get from Jesus is very hard. And I'm going to argue very sweet. Let's look at them. Verse 57. A man says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I have nowhere to lay my head, Jesus says. You're going to follow me? Verse 59 Jesus takes the initiative now and he says, uh, follow me. The man responds, Lord, permit me first to bury my father. To which Jesus replies, verse 60, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. A third candidate comes up, verse 61. I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. To which Jesus responds, no one 
after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit or useful for the kingdom of God. More than one thing is going on here. Now to see what's going on, we need to go back to verse 51. So I invite all of us to look at verse 51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he, in ASB, was determined. Other versions, set his face. That's a good literal translation. He set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. That's incredibly important to understand the atmosphere that's in the air as these people step forward to say, I'll go with you. What does Jerusalem mean to Jesus? I'll read it. Verse 31 of chapter 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged and they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. That's what Jerusalem means. I have set my face like flint to go to Jerusalem. You're going to follow me? When he gets there, chapter 19, it says, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So, we need to hear from verse 51 what's in the air as these people are stepping forward to say, I'll go with you. And what's in the air is, I'm going to Jerusalem. Then, to make it crystal clear, at least for the readers of this narrative, Luke records what happened when he decides to go through Samaria on the way to Jerusalem. Verse 52. Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. He needs a place to stay, a place to lay his head. But the people did not receive him because he was going to Jerusalem. You know what's going to happen when you get to Jerusalem, and I'm showing you what's going to happen on the way to Jerusalem. On the way to Jerusalem, you can't even get a place to lay your head if you follow the Son of Man. And when you get there, you may be killed. The path to the nation is through Samaria and Jerusalem. When Jesus says, follow me, that's where he's going. Now, now we get a flavor of what's going on in these verses. Verse 57, I will follow you. Verse 59, follow me. Verse 61, I will follow you. Even in the words follow is this truth that we so often miss in the word disciple. I mean, I've heard people say, what is a disciple of Jesus? 
A disciple of Jesus, somebody who learns from Jesus, makes him the master, the teacher. A disciple is a learner. Absolutely right and absolutely inadequate. Because this text defines discipleship. Follow, follow, follow. That's the essence of discipleship. He's on his way somewhere, namely Jerusalem and Golgotha and paradise. Will you follow him? Samaria, Jerusalem, Calvary, tomb, paradise. Will you follow? That's what's going on here. And we can see it more clearly now that we have the, the context. In fact, you can see the two things that are going on here right in the words phrase, follow me. You could say, follow me. Or you could say, follow me. And what would the difference between those be? The first one, follow me. I tell you, as I meditated on this yesterday, it became so sweet to me. Oh, I'm praying even now, oh God, make it sweet in this room. Make the young people, middle-aged people, older people, for whom the words follow me have no emotional impact at all, except maybe a little guilt. Feel what I began to feel yesterday. Namely, me, Jesus says, follow me. Who's that? The creator of the universe, that's all. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1, 3. The one who has lived from everlasting to everlasting, no beginning, no end, follow me. The one who penetrated history, born of a virgin, God-man comes into being and he lives an absolutely perfect, righteous, holy, just, good, humble life lays himself voluntarily on a cross to bear the sins of all his people, endures the exquisite torture and suffering with the spit dripping down his face, dies, goes into the tomb, rises triumphant. That God says this morning, follow me. You can know me. You can have me. You can enjoy me. I can be your treasure. I can be your tower. I can be your security against the sniper. I wonder if you just hear, follow, instead of me. So he's doing more than one thing. He is saying, follow me. There's a person and there's a path. There's sweetness and there's suffering. There's Jesus and there's Jerusalem. And these people are coming and saying, I'll go with you, Jesus. And he says, are you sure? Three answers. No place to lay your head. Let the dead bury their dead. Put your hand on the plow and don't look back. What is he doing? What's he doing? This is not seeker-friendly recruitment. Why are you making it so hard? Why are you talking like this? These people seem to have a good attitude. He's doing two things. He's teaching and he's testing. 
he's teaching, it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard to follow me to Jerusalem. It's going to be really hard to follow me through Jerusalem to the nations. It's going to be hard already in Samaria. And so he's teaching that and calling them me. Look at me. Follow me. A couple years ago, I told you the story, and I'm going to tell it again, of John Patton's experience on the island of Tanna in the New Hebrides. Uh, John Patton, Scottish missionary, 125 years ago, and he has a wife, he has a little child when he gets there, and she dies in the first six months. The little baby dies right after her. He almost goes insane at the grave, which he dug with his own hands, except for Jesus, he said. For four years, he serves all by himself on the island. He has two converts, I think, a little man named Ibrahim or Abraham, and then the whole island rises up with machetes and spears against him and tries to kill him. He has one angle of escape, and he asks help from his convert and the convert says, I'll deflect them and lead them that way. You climb up in this tree, they'll go under, then you go down to the beach. There's a little boat there and that's what he did and this is what he wrote years later about that experience in the tree. And I mention it, I read it for this reason. If you become a missionary or if you don't and you follow Jesus to the hard place of this city, in this family, this is what your reward will be. I climbed into the tree and was left alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to his consoling fellowship, if this, if thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? This sermon is a mission sermon, but it's also an evangelistic sermon because the term follow me is way more than a missionary call. It's a call to come to Jesus. Do you have a friend? If the sniper were happening here, would make you at peace while you pumped gas? If a theater had blown up here, would make you at peace to go out into public so that you walk in the serenity of Christ whom to live is Christ and to die with is gain. I, I welcome you not only to missions, I welcome you to Christ because that's the main point. Follow me. Follow me. And the other thing he's doing 
besides beckoning them into fellowship with himself, which is all satisfying, is he's testing them by showing them how hard it is. Since you have your joy, you have your security, you have your hope, your friend in the time of loneliness, your home, your father, your mother, do you now treasure him so much that you will go with him? Let's not make these hard sayings harder than they are. I don't think Jesus is saying missionaries will never have a bed to sleep on or a pillow for their head. I don't think he's saying missionaries may never attend the funeral of their mom or dad. And I don't think he's saying that one battle on the mission field with a heart that begins to question whether you made a mistake in being there, one glance and second guess ruins you and makes you unusable for his kingdom forever. I don't think these texts are to be taken that way. Let's take them the way we have learned, have we not, to take the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. The rich young ruler comes and says, how do I have life? And Jesus says, sell everything that you have and give to the poor and you will have reward in heaven and come follow me. I'm the reward. But when Zacchaeus, the little, the little tax collector, filthy rich, and I mean filthy, welcomed Jesus into his house, said something different. He said, Lord, half of my goods. Whoa. How about 100%? Or do we absolutize the pointed statement to the rich young ruler and say, everybody, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold, to which Jesus responded with joy, today salvation has come to this house. Here's the point. When you walk with Jesus through the world and people approach Jesus, he knows every one of them to the core. He's not laying down a law for everybody with everything he says to every person. Like, thou shalt not have any money. Give it all away. Or thou shalt have half your money. Or thou shalt go without a bed. Or thou shalt not attend the funeral of thy dad. That's not what he's doing. He's not creating universal laws that apply to every situation. He's targeting the idol of every heart that he knows perfectly. He knows your idol this morning. He knows what is competing with his supremacy in your heart. And if you come to him, he will tell you how hard it will be for you. And the hardness for you may be very different from the hardness of these three people. You may be not give a rip about your house. But something else hangs you up big time. These texts are all about you too. Follow me 
It won't be easy, but it will be good. So let's look at each one and ask ourselves, what is it saying to us as we say, Lord, am I, am I called? Should I go? Are you stirring this morning? Is this sermon applied to me? Are you boring in on my life as a 60-something-year-old, a 50-something-year-old, a 40, a 30, a 20, a teenager? Believe me, I'm not recruiting simply 20-somethings this morning. I'm after teenagers. I'm after finishers. Because Christ is after you. For himself first and for his mission. First person that comes and says, I'll follow you, Jesus says, verse 58, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Which is a question out over the congregation. How you feel about your house? How you feel about home? Your furniture? The remodeling that took you five years to finish? The new surround sound home entertainment center? The comforts of the bed and the den? The roach-free, bug-free, mouse-free, ant-free, totally automated kitchen. How you feel about that? Men, women, young people, do you love it? Is it a real high treasure pushing up against the supremacy of Jesus in your life? Or can you say with Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. Goods and kindred go. That's what this text is about. How do you feel about your home in relation to Jesus? Is Jesus 10,000 times more precious, more satisfying? Verse 60, let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Who's more precious to you? Your dead, unbelieving relatives or Christ? Nobody loved dead, unbelieving people more than Jesus. That's why he said, go preach. Go preach. Declare this. This text is not saying, Morris and Wendy were sitting right back there in the first service. They've laid their parents down. This text is not saying you can't go to the mission field. You can't come home to bury your parents. This text is saying you might have to not be there when they die. You might have to miss the funeral. Are you willing? This text is not saying you should want and hope for your children to die on the mission field. It's just saying they might. Will you go? 
This text is not saying it is good and it will happen that you will have marital stress on the mission field big time. If you have it here, it'll be worse there. It's saying, are you willing? The criterion of whether you stay or go, those choices and a thousand like them are not dictated in the Bible for every given missionary. And there will be untold numbers of decisions that perplex you to death on the mission field. And you will only be able to say, Father, you are my supreme value. Jesus is my treasure. Proclaiming the gospel is my calling. Help me discern how that relates to this crisis. And he'll show you. And it'll be different for every missionary. Verse 62, fickle following, indecisive discipleship. No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit or useful for the kingdom of God. You can't plow a straight furrow when you're looking back over your shoulder. So you're not a good farmer. So what's the point? God doesn't need anybody's service. God is not served by human hands on plows or anywhere else. For he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. And yet we're called to go. So what does this plow mean? What is service of Jesus? What does it mean to serve Jesus? And the answer is, it means so to live, so to speak, so to feel, so to go, that he looks really valuable. Make Jesus look good, Bethlehem. You cannot make the king look valuable constantly glancing over your head at the treasures you left behind. If you keep saying, oh man, oh man, oh shit, oh. They're going to get it. They're going to get the message. He's not very valuable. Serving Jesus means being so satisfied with Jesus that Everything else, Paul said, becomes rubbish. How many times have you taken your garbage out, put it in the dumpster, and on your way back into the house said, oh, oh, garbage. I just wish I could keep my garbage in the house. That's the way Paul is talking in Philippians 3. Something's got to happen so deep in my soul, in my taste buds, on my heart, that when I hear Jesus say, follow me, I say, you've got to be kidding. You mean really? A sinner like me could be found next to you, even through Jerusalem, Calvary, tomb, and paradise. I will take it until we hear both things. Follow and me. Path and person. Suffering and sweetness, Jerusalem and Jesus. We won't know how to respond to this. We'll get all guilt-laden 
think, oh, I don't really want to, but I guess Christians are supposed to, so I'll walk down there in a minute. You don't get it. You don't get it. It's follow me. I am infinitely valuable. I am infinitely glorious. I am infinitely satisfying. And if you see me and know me, all else in your life, mom, dad, children, house, ministry even, will become as nothing. And let me say again who I want to come as we close. First category, missionaries and those who are under appointment to go with a mission agency. Two, those who, whether recent or long ago, know this is the call of God on your life. It may be five years out as far as you know, but that is what you're aiming at. And number three, that ambiguous category that I'll just let you handle is not everybody. There will be godly, obedient, humble, biblical people remaining in their seats. But this group of people are people who either in this service now or in recent days or maybe some months, something's been going on. You're not quite what it is. God has been through circumstance, through Bible reading, through conversations, through worship. He's been loosening the roots of your life. He's been trying to pull like this. You don't know whether he's going to plant you here or there, but you sense cross-cultural missions is out there for me somewhere, sometime, and I want to know how and when and where, and so I'd like Pastor John or Eric to pray for me. Those are the things. And so, with no head bowed, and no eye closed, and no soft music playing, I would like you in those three categories to come stand here. So come. While you're coming, I'm going to tell you what, what we'll do. Connie and a couple of other helpers have a card. All it does is ask for your name and number and email so that we can, if you would like help, uh, we can just give you some pathways towards missions. Any way that we can be of help with the nurture program or prayer or connecting with agencies or anything. Eric Hyatt wants to serve you. I want to serve you. And we as a church, those who remain seated there, thrilled as they are that you're here, you need to be thrilled that they're there because none of you could get where you want to go if they aren't there. So get one of these before you leave. Don't run away too quickly. Now this is a beautiful thing. I think we're off the air downtown right now. Uh, but God moved there. I don't doubt that this is the same thing that happened down there. We have a high stewardship as a church, do we not? What a stewardship we have to care for these folks. Oh, I want to be a caring church for our missionaries as well as each other here. We are a nomadic church in a sense now because we're in different sites and we're going to be moving around and who knows where we might be in 10 years. But this is what we're about. And I just thank God for what he's doing in your lives. I know some of you are just have a big question mark over your lives right now. That's all this means. And that's okay. Up here, why don't we all stand to bless these folks. If, it, if you feel led while I'm praying, you can just stretch forth your hand in blessing upon them. So Father, here we are. And you have done more than one thing. In fact, among these gathered right here now, you're doing thousands of things that we don't even know. In 20 years, the story of this day will be told with joy. And I thank you. Lord God, now, I ask that the Holy Spirit would come and solidify commitments to Christ first and to missions. And I pray that the Spirit would come and clarify the question mark 
that the door that seems to be cracked would be flung wide and behind it would be a clear path on which to walk with Jesus ahead of us. I pray that every person in this room, the senders that are sitting there, the goers that are contemplating going that are here, would be filled with power. Guard us from sin. Guard us from fear. You've showed us in these days in plane crashes and snipers and theaters being attacked and Bali and the towers falling down, not to mention the ordinary ways by which we die, that there is no security on planet Earth save Christ. So why stay here? Why not go? God, I pray that you would work mightily now, even as these people take their cards and find what's the next step on which they should